Uh, good morning. It's uh, great to be back here. Um, my scripture reading for this morning comes from Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verses 17 through chapter 5, uh, verse 2. So I'll go ahead and read it for us this morning. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardening of hearts. They have lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil foothold. Anyone who is stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So as uh, Towner said, uh, I have been serving with the Coalition for Christian Outreach at the University of Pennsylvania since uh, the fall semester of 2017. Uh, the CCO is uh, an organization that uh, strongly believes that Christ transforms everything. That's their motto. And so with college students, they emphasize that uh, as students, you adopt a kind of Christian mentality in approaching everything that you do in life. And whenever I was uh, feeling called to college ministry and was searching for organizations to serve with, this was one of the things that attracted me about the CCO. And uh, that's because of what Paul says here in this passage about what it means to be transformed as a Christian. He says that as Christians, we need to put off our old selves and through the renewal of the attitude of our minds, put on a new self, a self that reflects the very likeness of God himself. And so to be a Christian means that we are people that have been renewed to have the thoughts and imaginations of our creator. And the danger that Christians have always faced, and perhaps especially face today in the West as institutional Christianity and our culture is in decline, 
is that we fail to think and imagine as our creator does. We settle for very human ideas and visions for how the world ought to be. One of my favorite books about Christianity in America is uh, written by the Christian op-ed columnist Ross Douthat. It's called Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. And one of the things that Douthat contends in this book is that the problem that Christianity faces in America is not that we have an absence of religion in this country, uh, but that we have bad religion. That the Christian imagination and mind has been corrupted by its fixation with mammon, with psychology, and with politics. So you think, for example, of the prosperity gospel. This is one of the examples that he gives uh, that has reduced the blessing of God and Christ to crass American consumerism, the gospel of health and wealth. Or there's a psychologized Christianity that reduces our faith to fulfillment and reduces salvation to therapy. Or there's a political Christianity that makes theology subservient to some kind of political ideology, whether of the left or the right. Paul, however, insists that we must no longer live as the Gentiles do. That is, according to the thought patterns and mentalities that are normal and come naturally to human beings. Things like human hedonism or self-help therapies or man-made civic religions. And this is because Paul attitudes that these attitudes of the mind that the Gentiles have, the people in their natural state have, uh, is that they're futile. They are not profitable. They do not lead to what is good and true in life. It is an unwise mental framework, Paul says, because it ultimately is a way of thinking that, as he puts it, separates us from the life of God. Natural human mentalities, natural thought patterns for directing our lives lead to death both spiritually and ultimately in the end, physically. And one thing we have to be clear here is Paul is contrasting these two mentalities, uh, the mentality of Gentiles and the mentalities of those who are taught in Christ, is that he's not preaching to the choir. He's not lamenting how bad the world has become. Rather, he's lamenting how Christians continue to adopt the mentality of the world, how even though we are in Christ and have been taught a very different mental attitude, very often we continue in those ways that are natural to human beings, in the ways that are futile and foolish. And so Paul's desire is that as a people, we would break out of these old patterns of thinking and that we would adopt a new pattern, one that transcends our natural human ways of thinking and that participates in the thoughts and imagination of God himself. It's something that I emphasize in my teaching to students on Penn's campus, and it's something that I want to preach on and teach on here today. And so this morning, as we look at this passage in Ephesians, I want us to look at the what, the how, and the why of renewing our minds. What it means to be renewed in the attitude of our minds, how we are renewed, and then why, or for what purpose are we renewed. So the how, the, the what, the how, and the why. So first... What does it mean to be renewed in the attitude of our minds? What is an attitude of the mind? Uh, It's kind of a strange word. Maybe we don't use it very often, attitude of the mind. But what Paul's talking about here is uh, the mental framework that each one of us operates on and lives life out of. Uh, This mental attitude or framework is made up of the ingrained ways that we think about the world around us. It determines how we judge and make sense of our everyday experiences and the choices that we make. 
sometimes attitude of our minds is referred to worldview. Maybe that's one of the titles that you're more familiar with that, that's been popularized over the past couple decades. It's a way of viewing the world and everything in it. Now, usually we're not aware, consciously aware, of our mental attitudes. We typically just think that the way we see the world is the way that it is. And you only become aware uh, that each of us has a particular worldview when you meet someone who has a worldview very differently than yours. Uh, kind of a humorous example of how this is the case is with my girlfriend Vienne. Some of you have met her. Uh, Vienne grew up in Hong Kong, and Hong Kong is culturally different than America. It's a place that pre places a high premium on success, on working hard so that you're successful in life in a, in a very material sense. And Vienne growing up was trained as a violinist. She went to conservatory here in America. But when she was growing up, uh, her parents, especially her mom, were very stern with her uh, in the way that she practiced. Uh, and in the culture there, practice earns a reward. So uh, she would have to come home from school. She would have to practice sometimes for four or five hours. And then once she practiced violin, she was allowed to play with her toys. That was her reward. In fact, there's this kind of ridiculous example of how uh, her, she really liked peanuts. Vienne loved peanuts. And so her mom would set a bowl of peanuts down in front of her, and every time that she would go and play through the piece correctly, her mom would give her a peanut, and she would practice until the whole bowl of peanuts was gone. <laughs> Someone said, wow, yes. <laughs> um, and when she came to the United States, that is obviously not how we do parenting here. We're often far more self-indulgent with children. And she was talking to one of her friends, Rachel. And Rachel was telling her that when she grew up, her parents had her memorize the books of the Bible with this Bible song. And Vienne said, oh, wow, that's very interesting. Did your parents give you a cookie after you practiced the Bible song? And Rachel's like, no, my parents gave me a cookie whenever I asked for a cookie. <laughs> so it's two very different mentalities of how we view raising kids with very different values of this kind of reward uh, after uh, practicing and hard work or we want to show our kids love by giving them a cookie whenever they want. It's a humorous and small illustration, uh, but there are other weightier examples of how this is the case. So take, for example, human suffering. All of us suffer in one way or another in life, and uh, there's a certain type of person, usually uh, someone who is a person of faith, that when they experience suffering, they see God's goodness and presence in the midst of suffering. Perhaps they see uh, how God has used suffering to refi refine their character. Uh, but then a type of non-religious person looks at suffering and sees the evidence of God's absence. They see the problem of evil. Why does a good and just God allow people to suffer? So one phenomenon of human suffering, two very inter different interpretations of it. The same goes for how we view our sexuality, how we view uh, our material wealth, our vocations, uh, the way we use our power, the very question of meaning of life itself. However, uh, adopting a right mental attitude, or uh, how we acquire mental attitudes, is not simply this case of two different sets of ideas, of ways of viewing the world. Um, we might assent to a body of ideas about who God is and what his world is like, yet we continue to act as if we don't actually believe these things. Or perhaps there are things that the Bible teaches that we know that we ought to believe, or should believe, 
yet they frankly seem unbelievable to us or implausible. Maybe this is the case with suffering, that we know that the Bible teaches that God uses suffering to refine us, that he is present with us in our suffering, but we find it very hard to believe that this is the case. This is because uh, our mental attitudes are not just a set of ideas. A mental attitude is as much about our heart as it is about our head. Look at what Paul says about the futility of the Gentiles and their mental attitude. He states that they have been darkened in their understanding precisely because they are ignorant due to the hardening of their hearts. The problem with the Gentile thinking, therefore, originates in the heart. One of my favorite books by C.S. Lewis, where he, he bears this out, I think, really wonderfully, is called The Abolition of Man. And in The Abolition of Man, he describes the ancient Greek conception of human beings that uh, people would have uh, thought about human beings in the time that uh, St. Paul was writing Ephesians. And uh, Lewis writes about how the ancients divided human beings into three parts. Uh, there was uh, the stomach, or the gut, which... Uh, was the seat of our appetites. There is the head, which is the seat of our rationality and thinking. And then there is the chest, or the heart, that is the seat of our affections and our desires. And Lewis goes on to write how in the ancient world, an education was more than learning about right ideas, but rather it was also about developing the right affections and desires of the heart, teaching a person to love what is good and true and beautiful, and to scorn and dislike what is not good and true and beautiful. And they did this so that, Lewis, so that, Lewis writes, when reason at length comes to him, then bred as he has been, he will hold out his hands and welcome and recognize her. So what Paul is arguing here is that Gentiles fail to recognize the truth about God and his world, fail to adopt a right mentality towards things, because their hearts don't desire God and his truth. Paul has a very uh, similar idea in Romans 1 where he says that although the truth about God is revealed through his creation to human beings, human beings by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Because we love our own idols that are crafted by our own hands, our own human ideas about things, we fail to recognize the truth of God when it appears to us. Now, all this might sound very philosophical, But Lewis also illustrates this concept wonderfully in uh, one of his lesser-known but really profound novels called Till We Have Faces. Till We Have Faces is a retelling of a Greek myth, uh, the myth of Cupid and Psyche. Uh, In the book, there are two sisters, Oral and Psyche. Psyche is uh, the very beautiful daughter of the king, whereas Oral is a very plain and, in fact, ugly daughter And the chief conflict in the book arises from the fact that Psyche, the beautiful sister, is handed over to the god of the mountain that the people of their kingdom worship as a kind of sacrifice. Now, Oriel, her uh, ugly sister, is very distraught when Psyche is taken away from her and given to the god of the mountain. And she tells herself that she's very upset because of the great love that she has for Psyche. And she's terrified that the god of the mountain is this cruel brute, and the sacrifice is one that the brute will harm and maybe even kill her sister, Oriel. And so after Oriel is offered up on the mountain, Psyche, uh, or excuse me, after Psyche is offered up to the god of the mountain, Oriel resolves that she is going to travel up to the mountain after the sacrifice and rescue Psyche. 
But when Oriole arrives on the mountain, she finds that Psyche is not dead. In fact, she's not harmed. She is alive and well. And she has the most incredible story to tell Oriole. Psyche tells her that actually the god of the mountain is an extremely loving and kind god. And that he has built her a palace on the mountain and has become her husband. Oriole, however, refuses to believe any of it. She determines that Psyche uh, must be out of her mind after being left on the mountain uh, for days on end, and that perhaps this is some kind of uh, uh, bandit that has come and has uh, tricked Psyche into thinking that he is a god, or perhaps uh, it really is a hideous uh, brute. And the reason she thinks that is because the god has only one rule that Psyche must obey, and that is he can never see she can never see his face. Uh, he comes at night and then leaves before morning, and she is absolutely forbidden to look at him. And so what's, what Oriole tells Psyche is that she can prove that she is right about this so-called God if she takes a light and shines it on her, her husband as she sleeps, and then she'll see the truth, that he is either a bandit or a brute, but certainly not a God. And so Psyche agrees, and so at night she takes a lamp while her husband is sleeping next to her and lights it, and looks at him, but uh, to her terror, realizes that she was right all all along. Her husband is the god Cupid, the god of love. And Cupid wakes up, uh, and because she has looked at him and disobeyed his rule, she is sent into exile from his presence for the rest of her life. Oriole, however, does not respond for feeling sorry for what she has done and ruining her sister's happiness. Rather, she blames the gods and spends her lifetime being very bitter towards them. She says to them, why didn't you give me enough evidence to believe that this was the case? But then, as she grows old throughout the novel, towards the end of the book, she looks back at her life and realizes that it was not the gods who wronged her, but her. She realizes that the the problem was that she didn't disbelieve that, that Psyche was married to a god because she didn't have evidence, but because she didn't want to believe. She was jealous of Psyche, the beautiful sister, and she could not bring herself to believe that Psyche got to be married to the god of love while she, the ugly sister, went through life unmarried and unloved. And so she recognizes that ultimately her problem is not her ugly appearance, but rather the ugliness of her soul or her heart. And what Lewis is illustrating in this story is that our ability to see the truth is dependent on whether or not we are willing to accept it in our hearts. Our hearts are deceitful beyond all things, Jeremiah says. And if we, don't really, if we really don't want to believe something, we will find reasons not to. And likewise, if we really want to believe something, we will be able to convince ourselves to believe it. Now, Luce's point here is not that our beliefs don't involve some kind of rational justification or that all truth is relative, but rather it's simply that mental attitudes are not formed mechanically. Our minds aren't just these machines that churn out true beliefs and ideas, but rather our minds are more like a garden which needs to be tended and cared for carefully so that the truth can take root in it. Think of, of Jesus' parable of the sower, where this, uh, this seed is sowed on soil. And in order for this truth to take root there, the soil of the heart needs to be fertile. But if our hearts are hard, like hard ground, then truth will not sink in. So mental attitudes are not simply about assenting to a framework of ideas, but it also means trusting in that framework and desiring and recognizing the truth. An attitude of the mind involves both the heart and the head. 
So that's what a attitude of the mind is. Now, secondly, let's look, how are we renewed in the attitude of our minds? How are we renewed both in the head and the heart? Well, Paul says that this new attitude of the mind comes by the way that we are taught in Christ Jesus and according with the truth that is in Christ Jesus. And notice here that Paul doesn't say that we are simply taught about Christ Jesus, but we are taught in Jesus. Whenever Paul uses this phrase, in Christ or in Jesus, he's talking about being united in fellowship with Jesus. The renewing of our minds comes about through our participation in the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. We have a relationship with Jesus that is intimate as the relationship between a husband or a wife. We're as close to Jesus as one member of the body is organically connected to another member of the body. And when we hear about Jesus in the Bible, we aren't simply receiving information about him, but rather we are encountering a person. The teaching of the New Testament is that right now, here, while we are in worship itself, Christ is present among us through his Holy Spirit and drawing us into a closer and deeper communion with Jesus Christ through our worship. Transformative knowledge of Jesus Christ is an experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, the Jonathan Edwards, who was an uh, early American pastor and theologian and leader of uh, the First Great Awakening, uh, made this point again and again, that part of being renewed as a Christian means not just simply having an informational sense of who Jesus is, uh, but what the old Puritans uh, would have called an experimental knowledge or experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he illustrated this through uh, the example of the twofold knowledge that we have of things. And the example that he uses this is honey. We can have a very theoretical knowledge, right, that, that honey is sweet. Someone can tell you that without you ever having tasted honey before that honey is sweet. But if you want to know what it actually means for honey to be sweet, to taste the sweetness of honey, then you have to go and sample some honey. And then you will know uh, what a person means when they tell you that honey is sweet. And the same thing goes for Jesus Christ. There is an experiential knowledge that comes from knowing Jesus Christ, of tasting and seeing that Jesus is good, rather than just simply being told that he is good. And this is the kind of knowledge of Jesus Christ that transforms us in our hearts and minds. So, for example, in his second epistle to the Corinthians, Paul says that, We behold the glory of the Lord in his word, and we are being transformed into that same image to an ever greater degree of glory as we gaze that glory. When we look at Jesus Christ, what we see is God's unfathomable love for us. In Jesus Christ, it is revealed that the creator of the world has leveraged his power leveraged his power on behalf of creatures who, in the vast scale of our gigantic universe, are simply not that important. It's leveraged on behalf of Christians, uh, on behalf of creatures who are deeply flawed and sinful beings. But in Jesus Christ, the power of God has drawn near to us. The power of God has become tender for us. The power of God has taken on human weakness for us. When we were dead, Paul says in Ephesians, God made us alive by descending into the very depths of the grave for us that he would, could raise us up to life once again. 
And he did all of this because before the foundation of the world, he loved us and desired to be with us in Jesus Christ. So this knowledge of God's love is the renewing knowledge that we counter in Jesus Christ of God's intimate and infinite love for us. A good example of how this kind of knowledge, experiential knowledge, can fundamentally change our mentality comes from the novel uh, Les Miserables. Perhaps you've seen the, the musical or theatrical versions of this novel. And Les Miserables is about a man named Jean Valjean. And at the beginning of the novel, Jean Valjean has been released from prison, and he's sleeping in the streets of this town where he's been released, and a bishop of the town takes pity on him and brings him into his house for the night, gives him a place to sleep, and gives him some dinner. But then, while the bishop is asleep at night, uh, Jean Valjean sneaks downstairs, and he steals the bishop's silverware, and he runs off into the night. Uh, But then as he's running away, the police catch him with the bishop's silverware. And so they bring him back to the bishop's house and confront him with the bishop. And the idea is that the bishop is going to press charges against Jean Valjean. But the bishop, again, is moved to pity towards Jean Valjean and decides to show mercy. And so he he tells the authorities, Jean Valjean didn't steal the silverware. I gave him the silverware as a gift. And in fact, Jean Valjean, you were very silly. You ran off without taking these two silver candlesticks that I was going to give you as well. And so he gives two silver candlesticks to Jean Valjean and tells him to go on his way. So the bishop pities Jean Valjean and shows mercy to him. And the rest of the novel is about how this experience of mercy transforms Valjean from a criminal into a man who is controlled by Christ-like love. The main tension comes a little later in the novel uh, where the police are again looking for Jean Valjean. And they arrest a man mistakenly thinking that it's him. And so uh, Valjean is faced with a choice. He can either let this man take the blame for him and go to prison for the rest of his life and he will escape scot-free. Or he can go and tell the authorities the truth, that he is Jean Valjean and not this man. And Valjean transformed by the bishop's mercy, realizes that he cannot let this happen. He decides that he cannot allow another man to to suffer unjustly. And he runs and confesses to the authorities, I am the man that you're looking for. Even though doing so means that he will be a fugitive for the rest of his life. Again, a profound example of how our experience of mercy and love can transform our attitude of the mind. Have you encountered the grace of Christ in your own life in a way that renews the attitude of your mind in this way? The way that Jean Valjean was in Les Mis. Did you meet Christ in his word and do you see his mercy towards us again and again and again? This is where our minds are renewed by a vision of God's mercy that is bigger than the ones that we as human beings normally contrive for ourselves. So that's how we are renewed renewed by an experience of Christ Jesus that transforms our hearts and minds. So thirdly, let's look, why or to what purpose are we to be transformed in the attitude of our minds? What does it mean, what is the goal of being renewed in the attitude of our minds? Well, as we saw at the beginning, uh, we saw that living by a futile and foolish mental attitude separates us from the life of God. It leads us into that spiritual state the New Testament describes as death. 
And so to be renewed in the heart and mind by Christ, therefore, means to bring us back once again into the participation of the life of God. It means that we become new persons, persons who are created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Remember, we saw that being a Christian means to have the thoughts and imaginations of our creator. This is what it means in the beginning when it says that we were created in the image of God, that we are people that share in the same mind and attitude and creative abilities of God. Now, after falling into sin, people retain the image of God, uh, but it is a distorted and marred image of God. We are like God in the sense that we still have uh, capacities. We are rational creatures. We have a will. Uh, We're more than just animals. But we lack the mental attitude of God in exercising our abilities. Our hearts and minds are no longer characterized by the righteousness and holiness of God's character. And so the point of God's salvation towards us is not only that we would be forgiven of our sins, but that we would be healed of the sin that distorts and mars our image. And so in Leviticus, God commands the Israelites to be holy even as he is holy. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs his disciples to be perfect even as their Father in heaven is is perfect. And then in this passage, uh, Paul urges us to follow God's example as dearly beloved children by walking in the way of love. And so God's salvation is about restoring us to the image of God once again. And the way that we are restored to being imitators of God and being conformed to the image of God is being conformed to Jesus Christ, who is the perfect image of God. We become children of God by being united to the one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh in our world. And through our relationship with him, his grace transforms us to be ever more like him. Think of what Paul said again in 2 Corinthians, that as we gaze at the glory of Jesus Christ in our relationship with him, we are being renewed to an ever-increasing degree of that glory. Think about how, you, how when you're in a very close relationship with a person, over time you become more and more like them. So I've seen this, for instance, in my relationship with Vienne over the past year, as we've grown to be more and more like each other. One day I might even convince her to give our children a cookie without practicing. This is how our relationship with Christ is. As we walk with Christ in our daily lives, as we enjoy a deep communion with him, Through the union with the Son of God, we are made bit by bit to become children who resemble the image of God again, to have the attitude of the mind of God himself, the thoughts and the imaginations of God himself. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it like this, that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And to to glorify God and to enjoy him means that we would reflect the glory of God that we would reflect the glory of God to other people. The new mental attitude that Paul says that we should put on is a reflection of the glory of God, of the divine love that has been shown to us in Jesus Christ. And so he says, be compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Jesus Christ forgave you. Our hearts and minds should be so filled with the love of Christ that his love controls us, that shapes our mental attitudes. 
we're reminded perhaps of the passage from Second Philippians where Paul urges us to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do not do anything that is selfish, but rather to count others more significant than yourselves. We are to have the mind of Christ that is the mind of a servant, the mind of one who did not count equality with God as something to be exploited for his own gain, but took the form of a servant and was obedient even to the point of death. A mind that operates on this basis, on the basis of joy and thanksgiving, of love and gratitude, of compassion and mercy, a mentality of one looking for others is a mind that reflects God in true righteousness and holiness because it reflects the character of God that has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And being persons who reflect the glory of God plays itself out uh, in a beautiful way in the way that we live with each other in community in reflecting the glory of God to each other. It gives us a vision of life together that is much greater than the visions of life together that our world gives us. The wrong mental attitude that separates us from the life of God, uh, Paul describes as one where the Gentiles have lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. In other words, the the pagans are controlled by a mental attitude that is self-indulgent and self-centered. Cultures across time differ in many ways, but the common thread running through all human cultures is that naturally we desire uh, selfishness and self-centeredness and self-absorption. And so our culture, we selfishly pursue consumer goods. We selfishly pursue experiences that we think will be fulfilling to us. Uh, We adopt attitudes that elevate ourselves above others, perhaps looking down on people that are poorer than us or come from a different racial or ethnic background from us. These are the visions that we contrive of life together, ones that are predicated on our own selfishness and self-fulfillment. But the attitude of a mind that is controlled by Christ is the opposite of this mentality. It's one that walks in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Paul describes this kind of community beautiful in verses 25 through 32. He gives us a concrete of what a community would look like that is shaped by this mental attitude. It's one that's characterized not by falsehood, but by truth. We don't, it's one where we don't live at the expense of others like a thief, but work hard, not so that we might retain our ghosts for ourselves, but that we might share the work of our hands with others in need. It's one where the speech of our mouths are one that we build others up rather than tear other people's downs, that feed our own ego, our own sense of being right. It's one where we are no longer bitter towards those that we consider our enemies or people that have wronged us, but we are compassionate and kind to those who are opposed to us, and we show them forgiveness, loving our enemies just as Jesus Christ loved us. We cast off the old mental framework that belonged to our old selves where we treated other people as things and objects in a framework of self-gratification and instead adopt a new mental attitude that is defined by gratitude, where we treat other people as Christ has treated us. Tomorrow we enter into a new year, into 2018, And something that people like to do often as they enter into a new year is make New Year's resolutions. 
And so based off of uh, what we've seen from Ephesians, what Paul would urge us to do, uh, I just would like to uh, encourage you all to resolve to be renewed this year in 2018, to acquire a new mental attitude, a new attitude that is shaped by the love that you have experienced in Jesus Christ. Adopt a mentality that is bigger and grander than all the small stories that human beings tell themselves about the world. Have the thoughts and imaginations, rather, that participate in the life of the God who loves us. Let me pray for us. God, our Father, we are thankful uh, as we come through a Christmas season celebrating uh, the love that we have seen in Jesus Christ that has come to us in the flesh that we have seen uh, your image in Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would be imitators of it, of the one who was uh, born in Bethlehem, born to die for our sins. I pray, Lord God, that we would uh, love your glory and be prepared to receive the truth of your glory and come to be people more and more who reflect that glory. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.